I would uh, invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Jutting up several hundred feet, about just a 10-minute bike ride from where I grew up in Salina, Kansas, is a historical site called Indian Rock. Indian Rock was the site of a battle in 1857 where what were called peaceful tribes from the east, the the Delaware, the Kansa, and the Potawatomi, were kind of being moved west because of white expansion. And the Cheyenne and others didn't want them moving west. And so they met at this battle at Indian Rock. And uh, the eastern tribes actually won the battle, and that opened the door for a settlement to take place, which eventually became Salina, Kansas. Indian Rock was known as one of the tallest spots in our town, because it's Kansas. So the bar is low for being the tallest spot. But it, it did go up a couple hundred feet. But for us as kids, some 115 years later, It was cool. There was even rumor that you could still find arrowheads at Indian Rock. One day, my friends and I rode our bikes over, and we were we went to the kind of what would be called the back part. There was roads up now and everything; it had been developed. But there's the back part of Indian Rock. Actually, I looked it up, and they call it a V4 bouldering, which, on a scale of one to ten, is not much. But we parked our bikes at the bottom of Indian Rock, our backs to the Smoky Hill River, and we climbed without ropes, without any help. We climbed up Indian Rock. We were 12 or 13. Nobody thought about, you know, somebody could fall here. No, we climbed to the top, and nobody fell. Nobody got hurt, so it was all good. And our parents never knew, so it was even better. And standing on the top of Indian Rock, Looking down below at Indian Rock Lake, looking below on the backside of the Smoky Hill River, looking into town and seeing some of the buildings, I thought I was at the top of the world. As we approach Romans 8, we're going to have that feeling today that we've ascended a mountain. Maybe a little mountain like Indian Rock, or maybe... Maybe you're smarter like I am nowadays. I don't climb mountains. I just take the road up and go look at the overlook. But we're going to come to the top of a mountain. It's as if at this point we've been working our way toward Romans 8. All roads, whether you take Dr. Scott McKnight's advice and read Romans backwards, or whether you start from chapter 1, it's like all roads in Romans lead to Romans 8. And then all roads are going to lead back down away from Romans 8. It is the pinnacle of the book. And in Romans 8 today, we're coming to the end of our third question. Remember, we broke Romans down into five major questions. Question one was, what is wrong with this world? And we discovered that sin is what's wrong with this world. Very simple answer, very complex reality. Secondly, we we ask the question, what is the solution to the problems of this world? And, and that's where we came into realizing that it is Jesus Christ, but, but God demonstrated his love toward us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And after that, we begin to ask the, the question, well, then how can a person live a good life? 
And last week in chapter 7, it was a little discouraging for us, wasn't it? It was like if, if, if Romans ended in chapter 7, you, we would all walk away saying, well, there's no hope for me. There's no hope for me in my struggles. But Romans 8, coming into Romans 8, it's like being on a hike in a hot day, maybe in a hot forest, and you come into a clearing, and there in the clearing, like at my granny's house on East River Mountain in West Virginia, there's a mountain spring of cool, fresh, clear water, and Romans 8 is the cool, fresh, refreshing drink that satisfies your soul after coming through the difficulties of Romans 6 and 7. I entitled this sermon, New and Improved, because there is hope. Because transformation is available. And it's all because of the work of Jesus. Listen to these first four verses of Romans 8. Therefore, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If I were to summarize those verses, it would be this. Because of Jesus, we have a new freedom. And when you stop in Romans 8 and you just allow yourself to drink in verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, I think we need to just allow that to sink in. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul isn't saying we're not accountable for our actions. But he's saying that in regard to the human nature, in regards to the struggle we have in Romans 7, in regard to the fact that we don't always know what to do, but because we're in Christ, we're not condemned because the debt we owed was paid in full. The word translated condemn is a word that can refer to a penalty. It can refer to a guilty verdict. It it can refer to a judgment rendered. And when you and I, when we put our faith in Christ, then that sense of being condemned before God is removed. In other words, our standing before God the Father is made certain through Jesus Christ. That is a tough concept for our human minds to, to wrap their head around. It's a difficult concept. You see, it's hard for us to imagine the totality and the completeness of the forgiveness of God because we're not ones who forgive so easy. See, human nature, just by nature of who we are as humans, we struggle to forgive. Sometimes it's because we misunderstand forgiveness. We've talked about it often. 
Forgiving someone doesn't mean it was okay. No, what, whatever hurt you suffered at the hands of another person was wrong. It was sin. Forgiving someone else doesn't mean you forget. You can't forget. In fact, there are events in each of our lives, the professionals call them triggers, things that happen that just make us think back at that time. And, and sometimes we have to go through the process of forgiveness again. You don't forget. Forgiveness means release. Releasing my right of vengeance to God. And so it's hard for us to imagine that completeness and that forgiveness because we struggle with it. But the moment that you and I put our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, believing He did die on the cross for our sins, believing that He did conquer death and rose again on the third day, Believing that, as we'll see later in Romans 8, He's in heaven right now praying for you, praying for me, making intercession for us. When we do that, when we invite Jesus to be the forgiver and the leader of our lives, then we are indwelt with God the Holy Spirit and completely forgiven and God no longer holds our sins against us. We are no longer condemned. Now we're going to see how that unpacks as we go through Romans 8. But remember, time and again, Paul says, we saw it earlier, hey, shouldn't I go ahead and just sin because then God's grace can abound? Absolutely not. Not being condemned doesn't mean I go and live any way I want. It means I'm free from those things in the sinful life, the sinful nature that bind me up, that keep me from being the person God wants me to be, that keep me from growing. I'm free from those so that I can love God fully and love others fully. As I was studying this a long time ago, a phrase came to my mind. And I believe God put it there. And it really came from my own experience, and experiences I've told some of you. It used to be that I would finish my sermon here, and then I would go out the secret door that's right there in front of you, and, and go out to, to greet people. And from this point of the pulpit, out to that door, the, 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 the messages from the enemy from, in my head were strong. Message of self-deprecation and, 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 and you know, challenging me and challenging that I, I didn't even make anything clear. There have been some Sundays where I, I sit at home and wonder, did anybody even get it? And, and I realize those aren't messages from God. And this is the, the statement that I came up with. I, I don't know if it's original with me, but it was this. Satan, our enemy, condemns. God corrects. There is a vast difference between correction and condemnation. God might say to me, Scott, you need to change here. Scott, you need to work on your anger issues. Scott, you need to be more gentle. Scott, you need to not talk about you as much as you listen to others. That's correction. Condemnation is, you're just an idiot. Why are you even up there? You should just go get a job at Home Depot. Discount? Yes. You should just go, because that's about all you're good for. That's condemnation. God doesn't do that. So when you and I struggle with bad choices we've made and ways that we've failed, 
we need to choose to remember God will let us deal with the consequences. He doesn't remove those, but he doesn't condemn or reject us. He wants to correct us. There is great freedom in complete forgiveness. Paul goes on in verses 2 through 4, and he talks about the law of sin. Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. To understand the law of sin and death, we need to understand that as like a principle, like the laws of gravity. When my friends and I foolishly climbed up Indian Rock without any help or aid or no cell phones or anything else, the law of gravity was still at rock, work. A friend of mine kicked a rock. All of a sudden it went you know, down and it sounded just like that. Rolled down the hill, you know. Uh, another friend of mine slipped at one point and grabbed a hold, and he was being, that's gravity. The law, the principles of gravity are there, and there's also principles of sin. Principles of sin and death. The wages of sin, we saw it a few weeks ago, leads to death. It leads to separation. But there's the principle also of forgiveness and love and acceptance through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And the Holy Spirit sets us free from the principle of sin and death. The Holy Spirit, as it were, allows us to soar and to be who God wants us to be. We're not bound, we're not held down by the principle of sin and death. And we all know those principles. We've seen them in the book of Romans. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory or the mark the, the, of God. Romans 6.23, I just mentioned it. The wages of sin is death. Sin earns us separation from God. And I would go further. Sin earns us separation from so many other things. It is sin that destroys relationships. It is sin. You know, We always think just death as in physical death. It is sin that brings about the death of relationships sometimes and the, the death of friendships. And we all know of friends that, man, we had this great friendship and all of a sudden something got in the way. It's the innate selfishness, the, the power, the law of sin and death is that innate selfishness that seems to haunt us. The power of sin and death is that Romans 7, I know what I ought to do, but I don't do it, and I know what I don't want to do, but I end up doing it. That's the principle of sin and death. Paul even says here, he says, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son. Now his terminology shifts just a little bit. And I believe there he's talking about the law as in what we've said, just read Ten Commandments. And, and we saw last week the, the Ten Commandments, following the law, following all the rules, doesn't save you. It doesn't transform you. And sometimes your human nature, your, your flesh, overcomes the law. So what's the solution? Jesus. I know, doesn't that sound simple? You know, it's like the little boy in Sunday school. And the teacher said, I'm thinking about an animal that's brown and furry and climbs trees and stores nuts. And the little boy raises his hand and says, you're talking about a squirrel, but the real answer is Jesus. You know, because <laughs> it just seems so Sunday school, so simple. How simple is it? But he's the solution. Paul says, and note very carefully his words here, 
God did what was the, for the law, pick it up in verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Paul uses those words very carefully. He's, Jesus wasn't just human. Jesus was fully human and fully God. The likeness of sinful flesh, it means that he looked like a human being, he talked like a human being, he ate like a human being, he grew up just like you and I grew up, he, he went through all that, but he didn't have in him that sin nature that you and I have. He was in likeness. Isaiah 53 says, he was despised and rejected and acquainted with sorrow and grief. He knew what we know. He struggled where we struggle. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 16 to 18, it says he had to become like his brothers so he could be the sacrifice for his brothers, so that he could help us when we are tempted because he was tempted. In John 6, after feeding the 5,000 and, and all of that, the great stuff that he did, he's talking to the people, he's explaining who he is. And the end of John 6 says, many of his disciples actually turned and walked away. They left him. And I think one of the loneliest verses in the Bible is when Jesus turns to his disciples and says, you don't want to go too, do you? He understood being rejected. He understood that. He goes to the garden less than 24 hours before he's crucified. And what does he pray? Father, if it is possible, is there another way? But then he submitted, nevertheless, not your will, but mine. Christ, Jesus Christ, knows the human experience. He was the only one who could pay for our sins. It is through faith in him that we are forgiven and no longer condemned. And in that we have a new freedom. But Paul is not done yet. Look with me at verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Because of Jesus Christ, we have a new mindset. In this section, we have a, a reminder that our lives with Jesus are fundamentally different. Repeatedly, the mark for those who follow Jesus is not a past religious experience. It's not a prayer said sometime in the past that maybe you repeated after somebody or said on a track. Nothing wrong with those things, but that's not the mark of my relationship with Christ. If you're old enough, it's not the fact that you walked down an aisle one day. Not a bad thing. I did it once, twice. 
One's for salvation, another for commitment, not like I was saved over time. Anyway, we don't go there. I've done that. I've committed my life. I've had to recommit my life. I've done that. That's a great thing. It's kind of a, a public statement. But none of that changes the status of your life without relationship with Jesus. Your status changes when you come into relationship with Jesus. When I first met Charlene, in my wallet were several photographs. Photographs of some nice young ladies back in Salina, Kansas. Photographs of girls I had gone out with. Phone numbers on the back. Uh, landline numbers back in the day. Girls I'd gone out with. Girls that when I would go home for a break, I might try to catch up with and see how they're doing. But there came a time when my status changed. There came a time when my status was focused only on Charlene. And I disposed of those photographs. Because my commitment was Charlene. I did not need to pay attention to other individuals in my past. Not that I was upset with them or angry with them. Not at all. It's just that they didn't need to distract my attention. My mind had to be set on who was right before me. Paul is saying when you come in and you come into the Spirit through Christ, your mindset changes. Your status changes. And Paul says there's only two options. There are those who live by their own human nature or even the sinful nature, and they are controlled by that mindset. And then he says the mind, the decision-making part of who we are, that part where our motives are, our choices, that leads to separation from God. He says leads to death. And not only does it lead to separation from God, it can ultimately lead to separation from others as well. Because the mind set on the sinful nature becomes self-oriented. It's a self-oriented way of living. Now I understand. I understand there are some really, really good people who don't have a relationship with Jesus. And in my time, and maybe yours, I've known some really kind and big-hearted people who are, we would call them philanthropic. And yet, I would tell you, in some of my interactions with them, as we get to talking about being kind and gracious and all, there's always that underlying understanding of, in some way, I'm going to get repaid for this. In some way, I'm going to get my money back or my good deeds back. And sometimes it's, you know what? I'm doing a lot of good stuff. And one day I'm going to stand before God and He's going to take all my good deeds. He's going to put them on a scale. And if the good deeds outweigh the bad, I'm in. And, and that's, a, that's an interesting way of living, but it's not what the Bible teaches. And so, you know, in some way, all of this is going to come back to me. But you know, I've known people who also are philanthropic, but yet they are hostile to God. Paul says that. He says, the, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. They're hostile to God. And so in a sense, they practice their goodness to show others, I don't need God to be good. I can be good on my own. And so they do it in hostility. Paul says, that shouldn't be us. Those of us who say we've put our faith in Christ, it's different. He says those who have the mindset set on the Spirit desires what the Spirit desires. 
They put God first and they allow Him to to dictate, to determine the terms of how they live. They do good things not because something's going to come back to them. That's a blessing when it does. They do good things because it's what God wants. And they trust God to deal with whatever He needs to deal with in His time. At the bottom line, if if a person continues in the realm of the human or sinful nature... They can't please God. Hebrews chapter 11 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. If you don't have faith in God, if you've not trusted in Jesus Christ, you can do tons of good things. Good things that probably more than I could ever do in my lifetime. But they don't earn you relationship with God. It's only a faith relationship with God through Christ that gives us what we need to please God. And it gets better. Look at verse 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, Then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because of Jesus, we have a new power. But note carefully, that power is conditional. Paul says, you are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Christianity, as outlined by the Bible, is about a relationship. And that's the whole conversation that we've been seeing as Paul has reflected back on the law and following the rules, etc. None of the rule, following the right rules, the Ten Commandments, it's not a bad thing at all. But it's not a relationship thing. In fact, if that's the essence of my faith, then I'm missing the relationship. In fact, if showing up here is the essence of your faith, then you're missing relationship. Relationship is so much more. Paul says, through faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in us. There's a power that's in us. So often... You'll hear somebody say, I'll hear somebody say, well, I'm going to wait. I'm going to hold on that one. Let's wait on that. Verse 10, Paul says, if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. See, even though my body will wear out, and you know what? Our bodies wear out. You know, I, I think about, you know, there was, I, if I pull a muscle today, I'm going to be hobbling for at least two weeks. When I was a kid, 
I would be hobbling for like a day and then I would be fine. I'd go on. You know, my body wears out. I went to the eye doctor, my annual checkup. I'm thrilled, praising God, I didn't have to get new lenses. Woohoo! Because I inherited the worst eyes on the planet. If I take my glasses off, you are blurs out there. My body is wearing out. And Paul says, yet if the body is wearing out because of Christ, we still have that sense of life and righteousness. If you ever run into someone who's still vibrant, even though their life is ebbing away. I know there have been times when I've gone to visit someone who's elderly and they're struggling with all kinds of physical things. I think of our friend Ava Parker. Our son is named, middle name is Parker, after the Parker family. And we would get this letter from Ava. She struggled with cancer over the last few years of her life. And she was, she, you'd get a letter and she would write about the pain and the, the, the nausea from the chemo. And then the next paragraph would be about the goodness of God and how that she knew God was there. And the next paragraph would be how she and Headley had, had actually ordered some books and they were literally planning a trip to the outback of Australia as she was wrestling with cancer. And it's like there was, we would read those letters with, with tears of sadness and tears of joy at the same time. Her life was ebbing away physically, but there was still life in the Spirit. There was still life in Christ. I, I, I would be encouraged by reading those letters. Paul says that's life in Christ. And he says, listen to this. And this is a first-class conditional statement, so I'll read it this way, verse 11. And since the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you... He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Did you get that? The spirit who raised Christ from the dead indwells each person who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. The same spirit who had the power to breathe life back into a body that had been dead in the grave for three days and three nights, indwells you. That same Spirit is at work in you. Let that roll around in your head just a little bit. Because if you truly believe that you've put your faith in Jesus, then the words I can't change, it's just who I am, do not matter in your life. Because if you say, I can't change, then you're saying, I don't believe. The Spirit of God indwells me enough to change me. God is a transforming God. The Spirit that raised Christ from the dead indwells you and me who've put our faith in Jesus. And we need to tap into that power. It's like having a lamp. I, I thought about it, but I didn't. I could have a lamp up here, and I could turn the switch about 40 different times. Just keep turning the switch. And the lamp doesn't do anything until I take the plug, and I plug it into the socket down here, and now there's power going to the lamp, and so when I turn it on, the light bulb lights. You and I need to daily plug into the power of the Holy Spirit, asking the Holy Spirit, it was prayed earlier, fall afresh on us. 
Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. That means to be controlled with the Spirit. That's a daily thing. The Spirit indwells me. But there's this very little disturbing, small, disturbing verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul says, quench not the Spirit's power. You see, because I have freedom of choice, I can hear the Holy Spirit. I can listen to the Holy Spirit. I can know the right thing to do, and I can go, talk to the hand. I'm going to go do what I want. But I have the power to change. I have the power to transform, not because of something I can do, not because of my willpower, not because of my strength, not because of my intelligence, but because the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead indwells those who believe. So I owe the sinful nature absolutely nothing. He says we have no obligation, verse 12, we have no obligation to the flesh. I don't have to fall into that bad habit. I have the power to change. I may need help. I may need God to bring people along to hold me accountable, to hold me accountable for things that I need to do. I may need that, but the power is there because the Spirit is there. This does not mean we're going to be perfect because Paul says we need to put to death the misdeeds of the body. It's a, it's a, it's a change, but, but we can change. We can be better. We can grow. We can learn to forgive. We can learn to seek forgiveness where we're wrong. We can learn to live honestly. We can learn to love others regardless of their status or ethnicity or identity or any other marker you want to have. We have the power to keep changing. But it's a constant process. It's a constant trajectory and growth. A friend, uh, Charlene, read it to me this morning, posted on Facebook something about, you know, I don't recognize the person who posted on my Facebook page 15 years ago. I hope I'm a different person today. I hope you're a different person today. I hope you can look back and see how God has changed you and grown you. That's what Paul's talking about. He says those who put their faith in Christ, they have the power to change. And, and, and so the Holy Spirit indwells us. And, and if you think that's awesome, it gets even better. Look at verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. Don't we often hear people say, well, we're all God's children. That's not really a biblical fact. We're all God's creation. We're all his creatures. But not every human being on the planet is his child. Charlene and I were in youth ministry for a total of 12 years. We had a decent-sized youth group. I mean, open house Sunday was that uh, we didn't eat lunch that day. We just went from open house to open house and, and had good food. Uh, sometimes you'll hear us talking about somebody. In fact, the person that posted in Facebook today was one of our youth kids. Now, they weren't our kids, but we felt like they were. We loved them like they were our kids. We, we cared for them like that. We, we are, it's just amazing to still have those relationships. And now our youth kids have grandkids. 
So they got old. We didn't. It was, it's really kind of a, a really unique thing. Uh, but they were not our children, and nor will they ever be. You see, there are only three individuals on planet Earth who can say that they are the children of Scott and Charlene Howington. And that's our three children, Bethany, Jessica, and David. No other person, no matter how close we've been to them, no matter how much we've cared for them, no matter how we quote-unquote adopted them, no other person can say they are our children. Only those who are led by the Spirit of God that indwells them are actually God's children. And to be led by the Spirit means you're learning to orient your life to the Spirit. That means you're guided by Him. And Paul says you're the children of God if the Spirit leads you by inference and dwells you. And then he goes on and he says, and you don't have to be afraid of God. You don't have to be afraid of God. He says, in fact, look at this. He says, you, we've not been a, we don't have fear again uh, whether we, he brought us about our adoption. He says, the Spirit doesn't make us slaves again. The slave language, again, is difficult for us. But the, the idea is we are completely free from the bondage of sin that enslaved us. We're not slaves again. We don't have to be afraid again because the Spirit brought about our adoption. The Spirit adopted us into the family of God. I had a friend once who, uh, from the West Coast, grew up, was born into an Italian uh, of Italian descent, but was adopted into a family. His mother, a California platinum blonde, dyed her hair black so her son would always feel that he fit in. So he would always feel like he belonged. And Paul says we've adopted into sonship. That's an important word. And I realize, you know, we want to try to make it you know, childship, but sonship was important because in that time, the son was the heir. And the adopted son was granted the status of an heir. And Paul says, because we're adopted into sonship by the Spirit, we can cry, Abba, Father. That word, Abba, is an American, an American uh, uh, let me say it again, Aramaic term. It's Aramaic baby talk. It means daddy. I love, the, I love being called dad. That's just amazing. The phone call comes, or a text sometimes, but, hey, dad. I just love that. You know, the only thing that's almost as equal as grandpa, but there's something about dad. I love being a dad. I love being called dad. And I love being able to go to my Heavenly Father and say, Hey, Daddy, I'm struggling. To go to my Heavenly Father and say, Daddy, I know you love me. And I know in this world there are some that long 
long for the affection of a dad. That, that, that struggle and maybe even talking about it triggers that I didn't have the affection of a dad. And yet the reality is you do. You have an eternal dad who's the perfect dad, who loves you unconditionally, who doesn't condemn you, who sent his son to die for you, who invites you into relationship, who brings you into his home and says, this is your home. You are welcome here. I love you. I forgive you. I want to help you be better. Yes, I'll correct you, but I'll correct you in love. And Paul says, we cry out, Abba, Father. And then it gets better. Because, you know, did you ever, I did, so I'm confessing, try to tell a younger brother or sister that they weren't really part of the family? Mom and dad didn't really love you. We just found you on the street and we took you in. Mom, am I... Nobody can say that for us as Christians because the Spirit says, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. He assures us that we are God's children. He assures us that we have that sonship. And then it gets even better because if we're children of God, then we're heirs of God. Everything that God owns we are an heir of. And we are joint heirs with Jesus. That just blows my mind. If indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may share in His glory. You see, being a son, being a joint heir, being adopted means that sometimes because of our relationship with God, because we have pulled away from the sinful flesh, the, the sinful nature, or are pulling away, and it's a, it means sometimes we're going to struggle. It means sometimes we'll be misunderstood like Jesus was misunderstood. It means sometimes we might suffer like Jesus suffered. But that becomes the badge of saying, but I'm doing this because of Jesus. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted, for they shall receive the kingdom of heaven. The Holy Spirit reminds us that we're truly children of Abba, of Daddy, Father. That we're joint heirs with Jesus. And he reminds us that when we come into that faith relationship with Jesus, it's not a one and done. It's a new reality. We have a new freedom. We have a new power. We have a new mindset. And we have an amazing new family that we get to live in and be part of and that family is bound up in, right here in the community that we have, in this faith community, where we come together, we accept one another. You know, you look around, we're an eclectic bunch. You know, we come from a lot of different backgrounds, and a lot of different uh, families and all, but when we come together here, it's like that, that old song says, I'm so glad I'm a part of the body of Christ. We have... So much. And we, we are just getting started in Romans 8. We got two sermons to go, people. But as I kind of thought about this and wrapped it up, I, I ran across, I've got a book on my shelf. It's a book called A Valley of Vision. And initially, if you read it, you would say, oh, really? It's, the, the subtitle is A Collection of Puritan Prayers and Devotionals. Every now and then, I, I thumb through that, I read it. 
And I realize sometimes we look back and the Puritans kind of get a bad rap. But you know what? One thing about the Puritans. They had a deep devotion to God and they saw him in the real stuff of life. My prayer to this morning, I want to close by reading this prayer from the Valley of Vision. It's entitled, Privileges. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord God, teach me to know that grace precedes, accompanies, and follows my salvation, that it sustains the redeemed soul, that not one link of its chain can ever break. From Calvary's cross, wave upon wave of grace reaches me, deals with my sin, washes me clean, renews my heart, strengthens my will, draws out my affection, kindles a flame in my soul, rules throughout my inner man, consecrates my every thought, word, work, teaches me thy immeasurable love. How great are my privileges in Christ Jesus. Without him, I stand far off, a stranger, an outcast. In him, I draw near and touch his kingly scepter. Without him, I dare not lift up my guilty eyes. In him, I gaze upon my Father God and friend. Without him, I hide my lips in trembling shame. In him, I open my mouth in petition and praise. Without him, all is wrath and consuming fire. In him, all is love and the repose of my soul. Without him is gaping hell below me and eternal anguish. In him, its gates are barred to me by his precious blood. Without him, darkness spreads its horrors in front. In him, an eternity of glory is my boundless horizon. Without him, all within me is terror and dismay. In him, every accusation is charmed into joy and peace. Without him, all things external call for my condemnation. In him, they minister to my comfort and are to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. Praise be to thee for grace and for the unspeakable gift of Jesus. Amen.